Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. I would like to introduce you to a friend of mine, Chuck Jonke. Chuck is a unique individual. He is what you get when you cross a gifted musician and composer and a thirst for adventure. Chuck travels the world seeking out primitive tribal cultures to witness their rituals and document the music that accompanies them. He shares those experiences producing film and sound recordings through his company, Sonic Safari Music. Chuck, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Mike. Now, your bio has you as an ethnomusician anthropologist. That's, well, quite, that's one that's quite a mouthful. That's just a bunch of PR. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you travel the world seeking out uh, tribal cultures to document and study their, uh, their music, their ceremonies, and even recording the sounds from their environments. What got you into that? What led you to this, uh, down this path? Well, it probably started when I was around 19 or so, when I uh, actually spent a couple of years living in South America and Peru. And, uh, you know, suddenly living in a different environment with a different culture, I was uh, really aware of some really amazing things, uh, musically, of course, and then uh, just culturally. So in, in Peru and the uh, upper Andes, you get some Andean music, which is really beautiful uh, music, which is certainly part of their, uh, just about all of their activities, especially ceremonial type things, religious down on the coast, you get Afro-Peruvian music. So um, after that experience, I decided to uh, start traveling and, and have a little bit of a focus on the, the music. I mean, I was certainly traveling, doing photography and video, but uh, looking for uh, music, especially uh, traditional music, in each area that I was in, uh, was, led me into some really wonderful uh, situations. So then I started recording these things and putting out uh, CDs. Started off with, of course, cassettes, but then CDs of music, uh, Peruvian music, African music, um, a lot of uh, music in Mexico, uh, Indonesia. And so this kind of led me into uh, starting my Sonic Safari Music record label to uh, be able to promote that music and also to do my own music using instruments and sounds that I've collected uh, from all those experiences. Now, what is it about the tribal music that so interested you? Well, I'll give you an example. A while, uh, a number of years ago, I was hired by a company to uh, do music of Southeast Asia for film. And so I found a lot of uh, different groups that were doing, and this all had to be just traditional music, not uh, modern. And I remember sitting in a room listening to uh, uh, Balinese gamelan music. I'd purchased a CD years before uh, of that music thinking that uh, I was really going to like it and, and just didn't like it at all. I hated it, in fact. 
When I sat in the room to hear this ensemble play the same style of music, it was an entirely different experience. I then could feel the spirit of the music, and there was a dance accompanied with it, and it was all part of their religious and ceremonial uh, music. So there's a spirit to traditional music that you just don't find with uh, maybe pop music, say. I mean, this music means a lot more to the, the people rather than just a, a, a transitory uh, entertainment. The music that you find out in the bush with these tribes, you know, as you say, it's, it's not entertainment. It's, it's more just a central part or just so ingrained into their ceremonies, into their belief systems. Is that what you're finding? Well, yeah. So what I'm saying is that with most most of the traditional music that I've recorded, it's um, not something to just sit around and, and you know, drink a beer to. It's music that's uh, a critical part of just about every aspect of these tribal uh, their lives. For example, for a, a birth, when somebody's born, there's music that accompanies maybe a ceremony to welcome a child uh, into the world. There's a thing called a tooth filing ceremony that I've seen. For uh, just about every experience that they have in a lot of these groups, it's, it's always accompanied with music. I mean, in fact, that's kind of uh, one of the central parts. You usually have, of course, the, the priest or the tribal uh, leader that's involved, but there's music that accompanies just about every aspect of these uh, groups' uh, existence. And you've traveled literally almost every single continent finding the uh, these tribes. Do you find that there's sort of a universality about this music and the central part it plays in all these tribal cultures around the world? Well, um, certainly... Uh, drums and percussion, rhythms. Uh, rhythms are really important. I mean, in just about every culture that I've uh, been to, I mean, sometimes just uh, just drum beats. Uh, and certainly in Africa, the drum is, you know, king. You know, Senegal and Gambia and all these other places, Morocco, the drum and percussion part of the music is really, really important. And in some cases, drives you know, people going into like trances, for example. So um, there are similarities. And, and the music uh, is not, sometimes it just goes and goes for long periods of time. It's not like a three-minute cut or a three-minute tune. Sometimes these are things that are repeated over and over again. A processional music, lots of interesting processions that I've witnessed. And there's music that goes along with that. And certainly a lot of uh, percussion and, and drums that are a part of that. Speaking of drums, there was a, a ceremony that you were allowed to uh, record and, and film, the peyote ceremony. Right. Let me, uh, let's play a clip from that, that recording. Sure.
this peyote ceremony, how'd you come about being invited or, or getting to witness this? Well, that was quite a story. My brother and I, and actually another friend, a third friend, were traveling in the Four Corners region. And we would stop off at these little curio shops where they sell artifacts from the different uh, tribes. And of course, I'm always looking for any, anything musical. And I, was, and I was certainly aware of different kind of Native American flutes that are made of different kinds of woods. Well, in addition to that, I found in uh, the Four Corners region, I started hearing something about a, a water drum. And I said, well, you know, ask, what is a water drum? Well, the water drum is specifically used and only used for the peyote ceremony. And it basically consists of a uh, black cooking pot of various sizes. They fill it half full of water. Then they take a skin, and it's usually a thick hide of elk or moose or something of that nature. And they've got seven turquoise stones, and they've got some leather twine type stuff. It's, it's like a leather thong. And they tie, they attach the head using these elements to the top of the, uh, the water drum. You flip it over and it's a Star of David, which is, and everything's very symbolic. I, I'm not exactly sure why the Star of David, but it is uh, important to them. And so once it's constructed, they start beating on it with a, a particular beater. And as you tilt the drum, the water slaps the top of the head. So you get this kind of a, Pitch variation, as you heard in the recording, like goom, 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 goom. So, as I went to several other shops, I kept an eye out for, you know, peyote drum type materials, a water drum, and I saw a Native American guy purchasing a head for a water drum. So I knew this, he was a peyote guy. So I went up to him and I said, look, you know, I'm really interested. My name's Chuck and I'm a composer and, uh, I would love to record a peyote ceremony. And he didn't say a word. He just kind of looked ahead and and I thought, okay, well, maybe I offended him or I I didn't know quite what to make of it. So I just sort of backed off. And I kept thinking about it. Man, I I really would like to record this. And at that time, the government was giving um, peyote users a little bit of a, a problem. So maybe he thought I was, you know, a government guy or something. So he left the shop, and I followed him out, and he got into his truck. His wife was sitting in the truck. I said, you know, I would really love to record a peyote ceremony, and I'll give you 200 bucks. <laughs> I just threw out a number. He said, okay. Because, I mean, I just didn't know what else to do. So I thought, well, money. Let's, let's try some money. And then he said, and he, and he said, okay, fine. So he gave me, um, and I didn't have that money, but I uh, had to go get some you know, from the, from the bank at the time his address, and he said, come by in a couple of hours. So we went by a couple hours later, and it turned out he was uh, behind his house, was a big, huge teepee, must have been about 20 feet tall. And inside the teepee were some nice carpets, and there were, and we, so we went, were invited inside the teepee. So there was about four guys, and then, my, then three of us, there was a couple kids in there, and they uh, assembled the water drum, and I got my, my recording gear ready. And to do that, the one guy who's a singer, and that happened to be the fellow that I originally met, he had a, an eagle bone whistle that was used. And then the other guys would just simply uh, join him in, join in uh, the chant, and then there, there was a water drum player. 
So they just took off and did about uh, eight or nine peyote songs. So that was uh, pretty pretty wild. So I was right in there, and they smoked the, the peyote. You can either take it, I think they have what's called peyote buttons. They eat them, or in this case, they smoked it, and then, uh, and then away we went. Did they explain to you what the whole ceremony was about or its purpose? He said something about this being a prayer. And I actually, when I got home, I had to get a book on the peyote ceremony to do some investigation and found out this, the, the use of peyote goes back, you know, thousands of years. And it means different things to different tribes. And basically, it's, it's like a prayer, prayer to nature. And each one sounded almost identical to me. But obviously, it was uh, somewhat different. So that's about as far as I got from him. He, they wouldn't even give me their names because they just didn't want that out there. And actually, that music was used later. The Doors movie. The Oliver Stone did a, a movie on The Doors. There's a scene where Jim Morrison is out hallucinating in, uh, in somewhere. And so that music's played in the background. And that's your music. Yeah, that's, that's that peyote ceremony recording. Your trips have taken you to trips have taken you into the Amazon. In fact, have you been there more than one time? Yeah, I've been there several times. Tribes that I've visited in the Amazon have usually been like really, really small. I mean, just like two or three huts and that's it. There's a story about you having a particular meal. Ah, yes. So life is really hard in the, in the deep Amazon. And even though you've got lush jungle all over the place, there's not much, I mean, they hunt and you can get a few things and that's, even that's hard. You can fish. But as far as growing things, the only thing that really grows there easily is what's called manioc root. So I was out there, my brother and I went on this trip. We, we flew into Iquitos and then uh, hired a guy and then went way out, uh, way out into the jungle uh, through a, tri a tributary. And ended up in a little village called Atuncocha. Atuncocha is actually a, uh, a Quechua word. So Quechua is kind of the, the Inca and pre-Inca language, or one of them. So it was a little village, and there was only just a few huts there. And it was quite uh, quite the time there. We basically stayed in one of these huts, and then we had just a little mat to lay on. And then, of course, you have to have a mosquito net uh, that you cover. Your, whenever you're on that mat, you've got to be covered with a mosquito net, or you're going to get little bug bites. So one morning I got up and, I, and some woman walked past with a, a cooking pot. I said, oh, what do you have there? So she brings it up and takes a lid off. And I look inside and here's a bunch of dead rats. And they're really, they really smell bad. It's, it just smelled horrible, in fact. And I, I took a whiff of that and it stuck with me all day long. It was such a bad idea. Smell and I said, "What? What do you do with those?" Oh, we uh, we eat them. And then, oh man, leaves. There's no refrigeration anywhere near, and these things have been dead for a while. So you know, this is when you start praying. You know, please uh, let me not have to eat that. So she went on, and uh, but that smell stuck with me. So we went off uh, and did a little trip uh, throughout the day, afternoon, and you know, to get some photography and just. Uh, walk around, do some exploration. We came back and fortunately had a traditional Amazon meal that was fine. It was rice, manioc root, and some fish. I thought, oh, good. So I, I escaped the rat. Well, that night, there was, was a, a special dinner 
the chief of this little village comes up to me and on a plate is this blackened cooked rat and the thing's on its back. So, I mean, it's fully, I mean, the full rat with its, you know, with its head and its paws, and its little tail hanging off. It was gutted and that was on the plate. And so I, nobody would start eating until I started in on this rat. I thought, oh man. So, you know, I started picking at this thing and it really tasted badly. <laughs> it was really Really terrible. And um, and so then everybody else, you know, started in on, the, on their rats. And I thought we're for sure we're going to get really, really sick, which we didn't. Uh, the, the side that we had on that was a little of uh, alligator tail. And that was okay, the kaimon. The alligator was fine, but the rat was really bad. And uh, I was able to sort of get through it. And of course, they offered me a number number two rat, but I uh, passed on it, and uh, and that was it. So I had to eat the dead rat. Well, I guess when in Rome. Yeah. Let's go to Morocco. Sure. And I'm going to play a clip that you invited uh, sent over regarding a particular ceremony that that you uh, were invited to and witnessed. So you're in Morocco, near Marrakesh, I believe? Yeah, start off in Marrakesh. Tell us about how you got to this ceremony. Well, the first time I went to Morocco, I just, it's funny, I was either going to go to Turkey or Morocco, and just happened to go to a concert of Ganawa music, which is, this is the music that uh, really, or some of the music is fantastic in Morocco. And so, okay, that's where I'm going to go. So I just bought a ticket to Morocco to Marrakesh, and then um, I just made it up. I mean, I just got on the flight, and um, on the flight, uh, a fellow got on the flight in, in uh, England, kind of a strange-looking character, and he was uh, had a long long dreadlocks, a fedora hat with a uh, feather in it, a big bone in his ear, really strange clothing, and just, just an interesting-looking character. So... I didn't get a chance to talk to him, but uh, the flight continued from London. We went to first stopped off in, in Casablanca. He got off the plane at Casablanca. We continued to Marrakesh. So in Marrakesh, I got there and it was like quite late at night. And, and I started asking uh, other passengers about a place to stay and nobody seemed to give me any information. And the uh, airport was kind of, you know, people were just leaving the airport. So I just went up to a Moroccan. I go, cheap hotel. And he just beckoned me out into the darkness of the, uh, the the night. Turns out he was the local bus driver, and I was his only passenger. So I got on this bus, and we drove into Marrakesh, to the Medina, 
He just points off in the direction of the Medina. And so I got off and you know, eventually found a, a pretty nice place deep in the Medina. The first night was not so great. The second night was great. So I went into this, uh, at the time, an internet shop to get some information that a guy was going to send, send to me about uh, some things to do in Morocco. And this fellow that had gotten on the flight in London was there. And I said, man, you were on the flight last night. How did you get here? And he said, well, I took the, uh, you know, the overnight train from Casablanca to Marrakesh. Well, anyways, so we, you know, turns out he'd been a deadhead for a bunch of years, like 10 years. And then uh, when that ended, he uh, started coming to Morocco. And he'd come to Morocco for three months out of the year for the last uh, several years. And I said, well, I'm a musician and composer. He said, well, that's what I do too. And I said, well, I'm looking for traditional music. He said, cool, I'll show you. So, I mean, that very first day, he took me into the deep end of the Medina. We went to Abdul's shop. And there in uh, Abdul's shop was a picture of Abdul with uh, Robert Plant and uh, Jimmy Page, which I thought, well, that was that's interesting. Here, this Abdul in Marrakesh is with these guys from Led Zeppelin. So anyways, that ended up being the first uh, recording session that I set up of the Skanawa music was right there. So uh, it happened a couple nights later inside the shop, in the back of the shop at, at night when they closed up the shop. And one of the players, a guy named Youssef, and I became very good friends. Well, the second trip to, um, to Morocco, I hooked up with Youssef, and he said, well, look, there's a big, huge Ganawa festival uh, outside of the city of Meknes, and I'm going to go to it. You want to go? I said, sure. So my brother and I uh, went with him, took the train to this place called Meknes. Now, way up in the hills was this Ganawa festival. Well, the Ganawa festival was basically all Moroccans. And we were like the only non-Moroccans that I could see. And it was going to, it was pretty wild. And they were dragging sheep around and they were going to be sacrificed. And there was lots of noise and music and dancing. And um, so we're walking around and down in a, um, down a little valley area, just, just below us, there was some, some tents and I could hear these uh, women singing and chanting and stuff. And um, there were some sacrifices going on there of chickens and, and sheep and this is all for fertility for them, uh, these women to uh, to have children. So that was part of the Ganawa festival. And then that night, man, it was just wild, raucous Ganawa groups playing this music, and it, it's really pretty astounding. I believe you, did, you had to describe some of the dancing with some uh, twirling hats and yeah, the the Ganawa um, they have this kind of a they call it the, you know, the fez hat. They've got kind of a long string type thing with like a ball, like some kind of furry ball on the end of it. And part of of their performing, and even when I do the sessions, they get their heads spinning around and and that thing goes twirling. And part of the ceremony, I guess, is they'll take turns with these hand clappers. And these clappers are really interesting. And they do these these really, it's going to take a, take a, take a, take a sound, but it's really, really deep. And it's, very metallic, and they do this interesting dance with their heads going around and around and spinning that that little thing uh, with their fez hat, and that's it's almost like they're they're in a trance, and, and they'll take turns uh, doing getting up and do, dancing, and then they sit down and, and then play some more. Then some other guy will get up and do the same thing, and it's it's pretty. It's a visually uh, beautiful, but it's an I guess an important part of the uh, of the music and the performance. Did anyone explain to you what was happening or the, the meanings of each of the dances? 
Well, um, not in that particular case. They, I don't know that they had a specific meaning for that dance, but these. I, I do tell you one thing. So the last recording that I did there was a bunch of some of the hottest Moroccan players in town. They, we got together at a, this guy's house, really nice place. Well, it wasn't very big, but um, and these guys just started in on it. And Youssef was saying that uh, this could go all night long if you wanted to, and said something about the colors of the rainbow. So there was some kind of a color variation as time went on, different pieces had a color associated with these, which I thought was fascinating, but I didn't know specifically what that meant. So uh, we did not do the full night recording. The music sounds fairly similar, but uh, these guys, just they just get into it. I think it's, you know, it's kind of a trance-like thing, and they, they'll, they'll go all night long. Like the, the Ganala Festival certainly went on for several days, and it went on all night long. In your travels, you recorded and documented quite a number of trance dances. Yeah. Let me play a clip that you provided. I believe it was from Indonesia. So let me go ahead and play that. Okay. Now, you've traveled quite extensively in Bali and Indonesia, Java. There was one particular dance you described called the Mended Dance or Festival. Yeah, that was uh, pretty fascinating. So there was, um, I was in, in Bali at that time. I've been there many times. And there's hundreds of festivals every, well, hundreds of ceremonies every year in Bali. And they have these interesting calendars. A lot of it's calendar uh, oriented by seasons or the phase of the moon or even the year. Sometimes this particular uh, temple ceremony that I went to was like a hundred year celebration. Every hundred years they do this particular series of ceremonies. So I went there and uh, of course I always have my backpack and my, you know, basically I'll, I'll take a still camera, a camcorder, and then my recording gear. It has to be fairly portable and I have to be able to set it up quickly. So I saw a set of instruments uh, sitting on the grass within the temple compound. So I just kind of set my stuff up right next to it. And these are what's called gambang. And they're kind of like, it's almost like a little uh, small marimba where they have wooden wooden slats that they hit that are tuned in a really interesting way. And so uh, I sat there and right next to me, uh, there was a little uh, baby chick that was sitting there, and its little leg was tied to a stick in the grass. And so I'm you know, not paying much attention to it. And then a priest walks over, pulls its head off, sprinkles the blood around a little bit, and then walks off. So I guess I don't know if that was the, the, the beginning of the ceremony or what. But anyways, then these guys came in and started playing the gumbogs. And it was very interesting, slow-type music. 
not too melodic, but much, but very uh, rhythmic. And they played for a little while, and I recorded, and then suddenly they just stopped, grabbed their instruments, and went running into a different section of the of the temple. So I followed them, had to you know grab my stuff, and and in this other courtyard, there's lots and lots of people. There was a big, huge gamelan group, which is a big uh, ensemble. These guys also set their instruments down. And I waited there, and, and, and in a short order, these men came out, and they were dancing, like you mentioned, the Mendet dance. So they, it, they come out, and they don't have shirts on. They have a hat, and they've got like a sarong, which is you know, around their waist. They have these ceremonial knives that they're, that they're carrying called the Chris knife, K-R-I-S. The Chris knife in uh, Indonesia is a, a really important symbol, uh, and each Chris knife is uh, supposed to have a resident spirit. And some of these Chris knives apparently have a genealogy that goes way, way back. So these guys start dancing in a circle, and then they start and they dance with the, the knives held up, and then the music kind of gets a little bit faster. And then suddenly one guy breaks off from the group and runs out into the middle of the, of the courtyard and tries to stab himself with a Chris knife. And he's pushing really, really hard. And uh, he, he's, you know, pushing and pushing and pushing. It won't go in. And then he stands back and, he, and he's dancing and he tries it again. So, I mean, he's obviously in a trance. And as supposedly the spirit is protecting him from the, the blade entering his body. It's a, a pretty sharp blade. And he's pushing really, really hard. And when he pulls it back, you really don't even see a, a mark on their on their skin where they've been pushing this thing. So that was pretty fascinating. I filmed it. And then right in front of me was a guy that was in the audience. And then he started kind of going a little bit crazy. And so the priest went up to him, took off his shirt, and then gave him a Chris knife. And he went flying out into the middle. And he did the same thing. He started pushing it, pushing it, trying to stab himself. And it wouldn't go in. He was definitely in a trance. So that uh, is a pretty pretty interesting uh, ceremony that I saw there. There was a uh, mask dance that I believe you saw where it had something to do with uh, spiritual possession, exorcism. Yeah, they have many mask dances. There's lots of, uh, uh, quite a number of masks. I mean, one reason I've gone back to Indonesia is there's just so much there. I mean, it's from village to village. They have just many, many traditions and masks and dance and music styles and, and instruments made from all the you know, bamboo and steel and, and wood and anything else they can find. But um, uh, the mask dances, once again, they believe that they're, they're animistic and that almost everything has a resident spirit. Trees, of course, are, you know, they have spirits. Uh, the gong, which is a big part of the... the or the Balinese and Javanese gamelan, that's for sure got a spirit. Well, the mask, uh, when they do these mask dances, there's a particular music that goes along with this mask dance. And then once they put the mask on and with the whole costume, and it's, it takes them sometimes an hour or so to get ready with the whole costume. There's, and then they, once they put the mask on, that's when the spirit comes in and, and they do this, this dance. So each one is is uh, is different, and they're very fairly precise. And it's not they're not making up these dances. These dances are really um, a lot of precision involved in them. What part do these dances play in their culture? 
Well, uh, uh, many times these dances are a um, well. For example, in in, uh, in Indonesia, it's a retelling of some of the the classic stories from the the Hindu scriptures, from the Ramayana. So they have the Kechak monkey dances. One that's, that's become really popular over the over the last while, and a lot of different. I've seen lots and lots of Kechak monkey dances. Well, that is retelling the story of the Princess Rahwana, who's, who's captured, or I mean, uh, the Princess Sita, who's captured by the evil King Rahwana, who's eventually rescued by Hanuman, who's the monkey general of this army of monkeys. I mean, and there's a lot that goes in. It's a tale that goes on for a while. You, you'll see, you can see, you know, one or two hour performances that kind of reenact this, this tale or this uh, important part of the, the scriptures. And in other cases, there'll be like, there's an old one called, the, there's, I forget the name of it, it's an old man dance of this guy comes out like he's an old man, but then there's an aspect to it that he's the wise. And that's another thing that's really fascinating to me. In, in the, the, a lot of these cultures, the older people are the wise ones. So in, in a lot of cases in Indonesia, when you enter a room and some, somebody's older there, you kind of duck your head. I mean, especially if, you know, if you're like a teenager or a young kid and there's, you know, some masters there. I mean, you, you really pay a great deference to that person when you enter the room and you treat them with great respect. And in some cases, like in Java, they have various levels of language. And you would talk to them using a certain form of a language that would be not the same that you talk to your, your brother or your sister. What's the strangest ceremony or dance that you've ever witnessed? Well, a lot of them are really strange, but one in particular was... Um, this was in uh, outside of uh, Jogjakarta, central Java, in a little village. And I was invited by uh, a good friend of mine who's f- from the area. So we went out to film this uh, couple of trans dances. And the, the first one that, was, uh, that we saw, these guys came out with kind of a horse kind of a costume. Some men, they had, once again, they had no shirts on. They had a, like a little sarong around their waist. And they had this, this kind of framework that had like the tail of a horse type hanging off and then the, the front of a horse. And then they had these other guys that came out with whips. And once this, the music started up and the priest came out and, and, and blessed this whole situation, these guys, the spirit of the horse came into apparently. And they actually would get down their hands and knees and start, you know, acting just like horses. They'd eat hay. They, you know, I mean, just act like a horse. And these and these other guys with whips would come and whip the backs of their legs and their backs pretty. And that and just didn't seem to bother them at all. But this was all a fascinating dance, a trance dance where these guys, you know, these guys are whipping these horses and. And eventually, at the end of the dance, the priest comes out, and they, and they seem to be okay, and that's uh, that's the end of that dance. But it went on for a while. Now, what the, what's the purpose of that particular dance? I, I, I'm not exactly sure what that is, other than um, this is just a demonstration of the Spirit, you know, and, and how you can get through tough times, maybe, or, you know, that uh, the Spirit will protect you. Now, a friend of yours, uh, when you were all filming one of these dances, 
actually had got touched and had an odd experience? So that was another one. So I was with some friends, uh, and we were watching some children, a children's gamelan group. Now, gamelan is a word for an Indonesian word that refers to orchestra. So gamelan can be instruments made out of bronze or steel or bamboo. In this particular case, is a typical bronze style of instruments that they hit with mallets, hammers. And it's really fascinating music. So I went to a performance at this children's gamelan. These kids were really great. People, you know, from young age start playing these instruments, and it's really fun to hear that music. You know, it's fun to play or to learn. Anyway, so here's this dance, these children playing this wonderful music, and they have this the, the old man uh, dance. So it's basically a kid, maybe 10 or 11 years old, in this costume, acting like he's an old man. Sitting next to me is my friend, and he's got one of these camcorders that sits on his shoulder. So the kid... In the middle of the, he comes up to this, the front of the stage, and, and the music sort of stops, and he, he goes through this thing like he's scratching his head, and it's like this uh, kind of a wig of long white hair. So he's scratching his head as if there's something in his head, and he pulls out like an imaginary lice or something. And, and he beckons to my buddy sitting right next to me to come up to the stage. So he's got his camcorder with one hand, he extends his right hand to this kid who places this imaginary thing in his arm, and he sits down. Well, my friend told me that the second he put that thing on his, in his hand, his arm went numb for about two hours. <laughs> I mean, it, things like that happen all the time in, um, in that place. Hard to explain. Hard, yeah, I mean, it's it just, who knows what that's all about, but it's and that's why I keep going to all these different places. I always run into situations like this that, you know, you don't know how to explain it necessarily, but it's, it's a really important part of their culture and who they are and what they do. Uh, in Eastern Java, they actually hit stalactites with mallets, and then they sing along with that. I mean, that's, it's cave music. Now, I couldn't believe my ears, and I actually went and recorded cave music. So there's tell, just, us, tell us about that story, cave music. Yeah, well, so that was uh, the same, actually the same fellow that we did, that's from Jogjakarta, 
the thing I love about uh, Indonesia is the, the government has a, a cultural division. And they have people that seem to know all these different villages and what's available in these villages. So this Puck Choco friend of mine, I said, look, Puck, you know, I'm, and he, you know, we love doing this. I'm in town for a while, and I always try to, you know, spend you know, four to six weeks or whatever I can spend there. He says, uh, what, what kind of music's around? I said, well, let me find out. And he said, well, there's a set of caves called Pachitan. So we drove out to these caves, and it takes, you know, a couple hours to get out there. And I really didn't know quite what to expect, but you get inside these caves, and it's not like it's like super long echoey type stuff. It's kind of a, a limestone-type cave. It's a little bit on the dead side, but they have these huge stalactites. And they have a ladder that they lean up against, and they have these big, huge mallet, rubber-headed mallets. So they had kind of interlocking two or three guys uh, standing on the ladders, hitting these, these uh, stalactites in this rhythm. So here's a, a rhythmic thing. And there was a guy on the ground, a man with a kandong, which is a drum, two-headed drum, and then some kids. So basically, it's a guy with these kids singing to the rhythmic uh, beating of the stalactites. And that's the cave music. The thing is, when, you, when you're sitting there, you, you have to pinch yourself. I can't believe I'm sitting in a cave listening to these people do this astounding stuff. It's not like it's, I mean, it, there's just a feeling uh, and a spirit to it that's just hard to beat. You know, you just have to be there. The recording is great. But nothing like being there. Well, sometimes you don't need to travel too far. There's a story that you had. Was it in L.A. with a gambling? Oh, yeah, yeah sure. I, I play with, just for fun, um, sometimes with the, uh, at the Indonesian consulate downtown Los Angeles. They have a gambling group, both Javanese and Bonnies. So a few years back, I was asked to come Friday evening to rehearse for some performance. So I went down there. I got a little bit late. So I went up to the fifth floor, and there, we were the only ones in the building at the time. And they were rehearsing the dance uh, with some guys and girls, and they were using just a, a CD player. So my friend, his name is Wenton, who's the uh, masterful dancer, teacher, also a, a priest who uh, teaches at Cal Arts and other UCLA places like that. He says, let's go down to the gamelan room, which is on the first floor, and we'll play the instrument, rehearse that. So I hopped in the elevator with two Indonesian guys, and we were the went to the first floor, and there's nobody, you know, there, walked down the hallway, flipped on the lights in the in the uh, gunline room, and we walked a few steps in, and we suddenly heard this really loud banging noise, like, bah, 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 bah. it was like two pieces of metal being hit together. And there, and there was nobody there. So these guys got uh, a frightened look and ran out of the room. So I'm just standing there. And at the end of the room is a big, huge gong. And the gong has a stand made out of pipes, water pipes. So um, a few minutes later, uh, Wenton comes down there and they're talking to him, you know, Indonesian. And, and he goes over and sits in front of the gong and prays. So after a while, he gets up and I go, over, what, the, what was that all about? He says, well, Chuck, as you know, the, the gong has a resident spirit. And you're supposed to make offerings to the spirit. But here at the end of the consulate, they don't always do that. So it was just making itself known. So, um, so I heard that sound. And then I've told that story uh, you know, several times. And uh, there are gamelan, there's a gamelan room at Cal Arts that's open 24-7. And students have told me, and there's a couch there. Sometimes I go there and, and fall asleep on the couch. 
and the gong will go off, wake them up. So, you know, that's the spirit of the gong. We've talked somewhat about the importance of this music and the ceremonies to these tribal cultures. And your work is documenting and in many ways preserving that and those traditions and that music. Do you see out there a, a danger that these tribal communities are going to be are, are losing their their music? Um, actually, not too much. I mean, in places that I've been, this is such an important part of who they are and what they do that um, I'm really not too afraid of that. Uh, the The young people, of course, you know they they want to be hip and they want to you know they like the, the you know, the, uh, for example, in Indonesia, they listen to the rock records and pop stuff that we put out. And sometimes they try to mix it together. But the traditional stuff is really, it's, it's in a place of its own. It's so intimately uh, a part of the ceremony that that's, I don't think that's ever going to go away. I mean, it's really a critical part of that. And they've really, uh, and they have some excellent universities where the uh, kids will go and study this music. And and I, I have not seen much where you know that, that would be lost. I, certainly not in that area. In other places it kind of depends on the, the groups. If for some reason the group is like leaving their traditional places, I mean that might be a situation where they you know if they have the, they move into the city, it may not be the same. But as long as they, they stay in their you know, traditional habitats or places that they live, their homes, the villages, I think that it's going to be maintained. And and, they, and the people are so creative in these, and they're so good. I mean, I've recorded people, you know, that work by day in the rice fields and at night, or I mean, I consider, the, consider them world-class musicians. I mean, the way they play drums or other instruments, I mean, you could, you could outplay anybody in, in the States. Quite an adventure. Yeah, it is. I mean, the fact the fact that you go in there looking for something that's important to them gets you into places that you would not ever get otherwise. Just fascinating. Just fascinating how all around the world, the importance of music, the central importance of music, and how it really transcends cultures, boundaries, time. Yeah. Just a, almost any other, any place in the world you can think of, it, especially. And that's why I don't, I haven't spent lots of time in Europe. I mean, I, they have some wonderful music in Europe, but I, I tend to go to kind of the third world countries where there's, you know, little village things. And that's where I've gotten some, you know, in more over the tropical areas. And I've gotten some just really wonderful music in, in those places. Well, Chud, thanks for uh, sharing these stories with us. I hope uh, in the future you come back and share yeah, some more. Yeah, we got lots of stories. We need to get together again and hear some more of those. Absolutely. Be happy to do it anytime. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world.